Good afternoon. Today is Monday, the 4th of December, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Brian Gerrish. Delighted to be joined today by Charles Mallett and also Mark Anderson speaking to us from the United States, Illinois, in fact. Well, I'm going to kick straight off with a little bit of a summary. I see people in our chat box uh, asking other, other members, what is the UK column talking about? Bring me up to speed. And I thought a very good place to start would be with a little overview of where we really see the UK the UK at the moment, and some of the bodies that are in, interacting on our national forms of government. So let's put some of this together in a little diagram. Um, we're going to call this the creeping rise of the UK dictatorship, because I think that this is the clear theme. UK column is becoming less and less of a democracy, and it's clear that the government is going to impose more and more rules and regulations on us. But of course, for many people, Parliament sits in the middle, Parliament has the discussions, and uh, this uh, uh, this basically ultimately provides the policies which control the country. Well, is that the case anymore? Because what we see at the moment is minimal parliamentary debate on key subjects. We could say any subject. In addition, we've got rise of the uniparty, so little difference between the Conservatives and Labour. Uh, at the end of the day, the key strategic policies always seem to be the same. And certainly if there's war involved, then they're acting as one. We've also got the close down of free speech. This is happening in Parliament. We've seen this, for example, with Andrew Bridgen, but it's happening for the wider public. The government is telling us what we can and cannot say. And the next thing we see from Parliament is the rubber stamping of policy from global bodies, NGOs, think tanks, and global corporate interests, such as Bill and Melinda Gates or the big vaccine companies such as Pfizer, for one example. But of course, this situation gets worse because the local authorities have been politicised as well. So they're driven by party politics using the cabinet system. They do as the party says, and they're increasingly subservient to that uh, higher level policy uh, coming directly to the local authority in some cases without going through parliament. So over the top of our parliament, we've got to put the powerful global bodies who seem to control the shots. It might be the UN or G7 or the World Health Organization or the World Economic Forum or COP, which has just taken place. Uh, but with this, very often comes these treaties or agreements, bilateral, multilateral agreements, which the public really has very little knowledge of, but, the, but which lock the UK into um, engagement with other countries and organisations. Now, we're also going to add uh, King Charles because he, of course, uh, is going totally against his promises um, that he was not going to be active politically and he is heavily involved particularly with these high-level bodies such as COP, the World Health Organization, World Economic Forum. He is absolutely active in these high-level policies. So what is the spin-off as far as the UK uh, public is concerned? Well, of course, we've got the Intel intelligence community, the security services and the military targeting uh, UK population. Uh, we've got int intelligence and security entering into what I'm calling opaque bilateral agreements, such as with the Israeli 
uh, Intelligent Unit 8200. Uh, we've got a special for uh, sorry, we've got special forces being used as a private army. Uh, we've got a vast spying network on the public via the Prevent Channel system. Also includes MAPA and FTAC, the Fixated Threat Assessment Centre. And that's all on a promise that, trust us, we are keeping you safe from terror. Uh, we've also got the state increasingly intrusive with personal data and access and collection of that data, whether it's financial health and the family. And lastly, but not least, we've got the police becoming increasingly aggressive, intrusive and paramilitary. I'm just going to go straight over to you, Charles, because I know you're going to do a little segment on the uh, police in, in a little while. But uh, what is your initial reaction to the summary? Thank you, Brian. And uh, good afternoon, all. I think it's a very concise and well put together summary and I think it does articulate very well what it is that UK Column seeks to do or at least where UK Column will look in order to explain the current situation we find ourselves in. I think for a lot of people it's bewildering as to how we can be subjugated to the will and desires of all these supranational bodies but I do think that that's explained in large part by the very banal and low-level corruption that everybody's got used to on, on a daily basis and allied to, or aligned with that, that the, the, the sort of practice of being told what to do, and I think a, a sort of mundane example of that is, is, for example, political correctness and say health and safety, people being told that they can't do this, they can't do that, and rather than it being rejected out of hand in the first instance, it creeps and creeps and creeps, and before you know it, there's no resistance at all when it goes that much further up the chain, and, and by which time it's, it appears to be too late. Well, Charles, thank, thank you for that. Your end point there is perfect, because for, for our audience today, let's give a classic example of what we'll call mission creep by the government. So I've taken this from the Birmingham Mail, very good article, encourage people to go and have a look at it. The DWP confirms plans to check bank accounts to stop 1.3 billion in benefit fraud. Millions of people could see their accounts checked with the government in a fresh crackdown on benefit cheats. And um, yep, they're taking steps to get into people's bank accounts. Now, I believe Mike's touched on this. <coughs> Um, in an earlier UK column news, but I just want to add a bit more detail to it. So in the article, the, there was a response by the Department for Work and Pensions, which was anonymous, of course. We're already cracking down on those who try to exploit the welfare system in a push to save the taxpayer 1.3 billion in the next year. We're ramping up our plans to root out fraud through our fighting fraud in the welfare system plan. And we're deploying trained specialists to review millions of universal credit claims, as well as bringing forward new legislation to boost access to data held by third parties, such as banks where we suspect fraud. Now, I'm a bit of a cynic on this because I remember many years ago, they said when we go digital, there will be no fraud. But uh, let's carry on with where the bill's going to take us. And under the bill, these are the key areas. They're going to be targeting misrepresenting earnings, include self-employed earnings, failure to declare under-reporting capital that would affect benefits, entitlements, failing to 
declare a partner contributing to the household incorrect reporting of house housing costs and failing to declare moving abroad or dishonestly applying for benefits while living abroad. Now, of course, we have some members of the uh, government who say there's nothing to worry about. I've taken a quote from Sir John Whittingdale here. He's Minister of State, Media, Tourism and Creative Industries, but for some reason he was quite outspoken on this bill. But he says it's specifically about means-related benefit claimants to ensure they're eligible for the benefits they're currently claiming. In doing that, it will save the taxpayer a considerable amount of money from the identification and avoidance of fraud. But uh, here's Sir Stephen Timms, and he was not convinced about this. He said this measure will give the government the right to inspect the bank account of anyone who claims a state pension. So all of us, actually, every single one of us, this measure will give the government the right to look into our bank account at some point during our lives without suspecting that we have ever done anything wrong, without telling us uh, that they are doing it. And uh, we should have a little video clip here um, with him talking and giving his concerns. Sir Stephen Timms. Thank you very much, Madam Deputy Speaker. I, I rise to speak uh, very specifically on New Clause 34, Government New Clause 34, and the connected government amendments, which, as we've been reminded, give the ministers power to inspect the bank accounts of anyone claiming a social security benefit. And I think it's been confirmed that that includes child benefit, state pension, as well as universal credit and all the others. Extremely wide powers being given to ministers. The minister told us that this measure is expected to save some half a billion pounds over the next five years. Um, I was pleased that a minister from the DWP was present at the start of the debate, although he's not in his place now, so the department isn't hearing the concerns being expressed in this debate uh, about this measure. And the, my right honourable friend on the front bench told us that that minister isn't speaking in the debate, so we're not going to be hearing what the DWP thinks about these concerns at all. Um, uh, my right honourable friend also told us, and I hadn't seen this assurance, that these powers are not going to be used for a few years. And so I'm completely, if that's correct, I'm, I'm, not, I, I'm completely mystified why this is being done in this way. If actually we had a few years to get these powers in place, why didn't the government wait until there was an appropriate legislation, which could be properly scrutinised, rather than bringing them forward now with zero scrutiny and no opportunity for common scrutiny. Uh, there will, no doubt, be scrutiny um, in the other place, but surely a measure of this kind ought to have scrutiny in, in this house. So very quiet in his delivery, but this man is raising some really important points. And if we want to echo how serious 
uh, these proposals are. Let's come to David Davis. He had this to say. Uh, I think everybody in the House understands the importance of getting it right. We all want to stop the fraud that takes place in the current state system. That being said, this is the only time that I am aware of where the state seeks a right to put people under surveillance without prior suspicion. Therefore, this has to be restricted very carefully. Well, this is a good opportunity to bring uh, Charles back on screen because, of course, Charles, um, the police should be dealing with the fraud and corruption, are they? It doesn't appear to be so. But uh, you've also got concerns in other directions with the police. I have, Brian. Thank you very much indeed. And when it concerns fraud and corruption, I think we have to consider where exactly that fraud and corruption may be, whether it's within or without the police forces themselves. What I've got is a video clip. And I'd like you to watch it and form your own opinions about the way in which the police and public relate to one another. This is an isolated incident, of course. If you're only able to listen to it and not watch it, then it occurs in broad daylight in Birmingham city centre at some point in the last few days. And you'll hear the, the voice of a non-native man who is the person recording the video, and he's speaking mostly to a police sergeant and a little bit to a police constable. You can tell from the music in the background that it's it's clipped. It obviously went on for a reasonable length of time, so we've got segments from it. So please watch, make your own mind up, and we'll come back to, to the issues teased out by it at the end of the clip. Jesus Christ. How are you? Don't worry. Oh, I'm sorry. Very good thing. I told you all right. I told you all right. You're good. You're good. You okay? Your hair. What's your name? My name? Yes. Why? What's your name? Chris Willits. Chris Willits. Nice to meet you, my friend. Nice to meet you. Where are you from? Where am I from? Yeah. From Birmingham? Nah. Where are you from? Where am I from? Uh, somewhere around the planet. Oh, so what brings you here today? Oh, not a lot. Not a lot. No. So, what do you need to know? You're here in the city centre observing me. Okay, I'm trying to ask you some questions. Right, right. And you're making that very difficult for me, which makes me suspect that you might be trying to conceal something or hide something. Oh. Okay, take your hand out your pocket for me, my friend. Okay, so. I'd like to This is not name. a conversation now, is it? So no, it's not now. So at the moment I'm detaining you. For? Because I want to know some more information about you. You can't just detain me for that. Yeah, I can. Yeah, you can't. Yeah, I can. Section 50 of the Police Reform Act, I'm asking your name. What did I do? Pardon? Your presence here is unnerving me, making me very suspicious. Because you're, you you're watching what we're doing. You stood watching what we were doing over here. You stood watching what we were doing over here. What's, that? What's wrong with that? Pardon? What's makes that? me suspicious. So, okay, you're suspicious, but it doesn't give you the right to grab me. It does, because Can you? you put your hand in your pocket, which makes me concerned. It's cold! Look how my hands are blue! Okay. I'm going to disperse you from the city centre because you can't give me a satisfactory reason why you disperse me? And I'm concerned that your reason for being here yeah. is going to contribute to crime or antisocial behaviour. But why, why, so, where do you come that from? 35, no, you can't use 35. Um, 35, an inspector needs to issue that. It's been issued. Are you an inspector? No, it's been issued already by inspector. You've been dispersed. We're not going to engage in any further conversation. Goodbye. That's fine. Anyway, you've been dispersed. At the moment, you're failing to disperse. So it's up to you. You can go or I can arrest you. You guys are pathetic, seriously. You are really pathetic. 
Apologies to those of you that don't much care for reggae. That was a bit overwhelming, but that does encapsulate very well the ways in which legislation can be brought to bear to deal with a certain situation. You no doubt will have made your opinion on how you think that individual was treated, notwithstanding the fact that it may be slightly strange to be filming in public in the manner that he was, but that is not against the law. And We'll just go into the various bits of legislation that were referenced, the first one being Police Reform Act 2002, which is worth noting is the one that brought in the changes to the Oath of Allegiance and introduced the clause upholding fundamental human rights. As we now know, to our cost, those rights may be limited or restricted, or at least some of them may be. Um, so if we can just put on screen the next bit of of uh, legislation from that showing section 50, which refers to the antisocial behaviour. And this is where he goes wrong immediately, because it states, if a constable in uniform has reason to believe that a person has engaged or is engaging in antisocial behaviour, then he may ask for the name and address. Of course, he used the language of suspicion and suspecting. So it wasn't uh, a belief of his that the that, antisocial behaviour was being engaged in. He introduced that retrospectively. Upon asking the name, he just wanted to know the person's name. And I should state at this point that police do not have a power of stop an account. They may speak to you in the street in the same way that you may speak to anybody else in the street. You can ask them what they're doing. They do not have to answer. Unless police bring a power to bear, they may not be answered if the respondent doesn't want to answer. So we'll just go into antisocial behaviour. If we click on one to the Antisocial Behaviour Crime and Policing Act 2014, and we'll just look at the definition of antisocial behaviour, which says that it is conduct that has caused or is likely to cause harassment, alarm or distress to any person. The College of Policing on the next slide shows the distinctions between the various types of uh, antisocial behaviour, because it may in effect be personal or it may be related to where you live or indeed a wider form in terms of um, the environmental concerns. And if we go forward again, we'll just look at the dispersal order that he refers to. Now, the, the man recording is well versed because he knows about the Antisocial Behaviour Act, and he's willing to counter on that about what we hear him talking about, Section 35. Now, it looks like what's happened is an inspector has made an authorization, a blanket authorization across Birmingham for this period of time in order that police constables may trap, in effect, those that they talk to with Section 35, which is the dispersal order. So we just put Section 35 back onto the screen. And we'll just have a quick look at that, uh, which states that uh, the authorization is um, to for somebody to leave the locality, not to return to the locality. Uh, sorry, just on one, Brian. That's right. That's it. That's right. Okay. Um, so this is in effect to stop members of the public being harassed, alarmed, or distressed, or to prevent the occurrence in the locality of crime or disorder. And then we see below section 39, which states that 
this may ultimately lead to imprisonment or even a fine. So effectively, what, what we've got is a situation in which a police sergeant has crafted from almost nowhere a result in which it was possible for somebody to have been imprisoned simply for failing to answer the question in the first instance of who they were and what they were doing. So he's misapplied the legislation. As we've seen, he's he's misused it. He's confused believe and suspect, which is an enormous distinction to be making. And then we saw towards the end of the clip, sort of rather unpleasant and I would say childish manner in which the man is is dismissed as though he's not worth talking to. So it's as though police really do forget themselves in that they are simply civilian members of society who, who wear a uniform in order to protect the freedoms of those that they police. Now, the gift that keeps on giving, we should refer back to because Just Stop Oil have also found themselves uh, victim of this piece of legislation. In recent times, they were outside Rishi Sunak's private residence, and they're shown here being dispersed by an inspector saying, well, there's a, a caption below, so we are requesting your details. Again, the same sort of thing. The key word used here is detained, and that cropped up in this video. The police sergeant refers to detaining the, the man. Now, nowhere in the legislation does it give police a right or a power or the authority to detain less still to use force, which of course he did, and certainly not to start inspecting the, the possessions that they had on them. So it, fundamentally, not only is it a misapplication of the legislation, but it, it portrays a massive lack in confidence in their ability simply to deal with the public at a human level. And I'm not suggesting in any way that this is appropriate, applicable rather to all police, but it just goes to show how these sorts of laws, this sort of legislation, may be corrupted to suit the agenda of those that want to belittle the police, the, the people that they police amongst. With that in mind, we'll just have a quick glance at the future and the criminal justice bill, which we've referred to on UK Column News a number of times now. If we just bring that on screen. And this is the, the parliamentary bill going through now. And I've got a bit of text. Uh, so we'll just go one click on from there because there are many items from the criminal justice bill. But the, the one that I'd like to look at is what's been referred to as nuisance begging. And specifically, not least of the endless categories in which nuisance begging may occur, but we have the same situation in which the subsection applies if P begs in a way that has caused or is likely to cause harassment, alarm or distress to a person. So it's this terrifically subjective nature of being offended, which is exactly what that police sergeant articulated. He said, referring only to himself, that he was being unnerved. Now, it's not applicable to this bit of legislation, but I should refer back to the Public Order Act 1986, the first three sections of which relate to somebody, uh, and particularly a police constable, being a person of reasonable firmness. I've spoken about this before, and essentially it means that a police constable who should be well used to dealing with such situations would be robust enough not to be offended by whatever it is that's going to be happening. Of course, this isn't actually written into this bit of legislation, but it's just something to bear in mind. If somebody's going to put on the uniform and go out and deal with potentially life-threatening incidents, should they really be behaving like this 
to a man standing on a street corner filming them. Okay, Charles, thank you very much for that. Well, of course, they shouldn't. But if your objective is to close down uh, freedoms amongst the public and free speech and activities on the street, then it works extremely well. Well, let's uh, bring in Mark Anderson. The topic is uh, COP28. And of course, in my opening diagram of the close down of democracy, I was pointing out the power of overseas initiatives and organisations and COP is one of those. Mark, welcome. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, that represents the privatization of government, which was some summate or be a summary, that is, of what you were saying earlier. Anyway, the um, Sultan in Arab Emirates at the start of the COP28 in Dubai, it started November 30th. It runs all the way through December 12th, as I mentioned last week. Uh, this Sultan Al Jaber, J-A-B-E-R, I'll try and pronounce it correctly, Al Jaber, or Jaber, uh, he had the audacity to question the science behind the phasing out of fossil fuels. And he's basically the MC or the, the lead voice here at the, uh, the uh, summit. I wanted to stay on that uh, previous slide just for a moment. Uh, the the uh, Guardian uh, the Guardian doesn't get a whole lot of things right, but we'll read the headline. COP28 president says there's no science behind demands for phase out of fossil fuels. A little bit of info to share here. The president of COP28, that's his exact position, Sultan Al Jaber, has claimed there's no science indicating that a phase of fuels is needed to restrict global heating and keep it at 1.5 degrees Celsius. This is the North Star according to the people at this summit. Jay Burr said a phase out of fossil fuels will not allow sustainable development unless you want to take the world back into the caves. He had the audacity to say. Of course, the, the hosannas of disgust by the globalists are still being heard. The comments were incredibly concerning and verging on climate denial. How dare he, said a UN official, and people are just uh, having a hissy fit about it. And uh, we'll move on from there. Uh, the issue for COP28 is coming up here. And the uh, position here stated from a European Union website is, and is, as I mentioned, from November 30 to the 12th of December, COP28 brings together uh, the parties to the UN framework on uh, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, and that, of course, includes all 17 sustainable development goals that the world must be forced to adhere to. They include the EU and uh, all U EU member states. The EU was represented by European Council President Charles Michel, European Commission President Ursula von and the Spanish Presidency of the Council. The EU delegation uh, is led by the European Commission and the Spanish Presidency. The Council stressed the global ambition must, must substantially uh, be upheld. Um, we're getting a little bit of distortion of the image there. I can't quite read the slide. Uh, it I says, don't know why. I hope you out. It says the Council stressed that global ambition must increase substantially to keep the 1.5 degrees C objective within reach. And it called for strengthening of nationally determined contributions, global phase out of unabated fossil fuels, uh, de um, fully or predominantly decarbonized global power systems, phase out of fossil fuels, subsidies, etc. Yeah, I can read it a little bit. A couple more. A phase out of fossil fuel subsidies 
which do not address energy poverty or just transition as soon as possible, global action towards the tripling of installed renewable energy capacity and the doubling of the rate of improvement in energy efficiency by 2030. Uh, going to the bottom, the EU is also determined to work together with all parties to continue promoting the implementation of the enhanced transparency framework, foster an inclusive discussion on the future uh, through that UN um, initiative I mentioned, and address the gender dimension, whatever that is, and discuss the implementation of climate action in the ag agricultural realm and food security. Now, moving on from there, uh, the Secretary of State, the former one, John Kerry uh, of the United States, he was Secretary of State, uh, I believe it was Obama. He's the U.S. emissary. This is from the State Department's website. Um, he vehemently disagreed with the Sultan, uh, who's raising again the uh, practically the lone skeptical voice saying, show me, don't tell me. I simply don't believe the narrative 100%. You need to dictating to me and prove your assertions. This is what the Sultan is saying to say a little more about that. Secretary Kerry, the U.S. emissary, uh, said, needless to say, because of what Mother Nature has been screaming at us over the past year, particularly with the losses and damages and amazing impacts around the world, I think people all over the world have high hopes for this Conference of the Parties or COP28, as I do. It's a very important COP. It's the first one that will take stock of our collective progress toward achieving the, go the goals of the Paris Agreement. So this is where they're really making the rubber meet the road to try and make the 2015 Paris Agreement um, take hold. And that's probably the uh, most pivotal, significant thing of COP28. And there's a mention by uh, former Secretary of State, now U.S. Emissary to COP28, John Kerry, there's a mention by him and others of this concept, global stock take. And uh, I show the website there where people can read more at mckinsey.com, but what is the global stock take? And it's simply this, the global stock take is an assessment of progress made toward the mitigating global warming, made toward mitigating global warming since the Paris Agreement in 2015, the results from the ever global stock take will be discussed at COP28. So there's several days to go with COP28 lasting until December 12th, but that's what's going on now. The Sultan is raising Cain. Uh, they're, they're shouting him down. They don't want to hear it. Of course, they knew ahead of time that holding this event in the UAE that that is a uh, major oil-producing country, and that there's going to be a bias there toward keeping so-called fossil fuels intact, even if the Sultan begrudgingly goes along with this COP28 agenda. And we'll know more about it in the near future. But I'm also working, I'll mention, I'll mention briefly, I'm working on an article that will provide an overview of what I've done over the last five or six UK columns about the climate issue to try and sort this out and add some clarity and perspective on this, Brian. So back to you. Okay, Mark, thank you very much for that. Well, of course, very powerful discussions going on there with COP and those policies will come straight back into UK national governmental policy, we can be sure. So who is running the country, COP or our own government? I'll leave the audience to answer that question. Well, if you like what UK Column does, we can only do what we do with your financial support. So we're very grateful to all our subscribers for joining us and supporting us. And of course, if you do uh, subscribe, you have the benefit of being able to share the uh, community 
But at the end of the day, it's your support that keeps us going. Um, you can also help us out by visiting the UK Column shop. And uh, we're very keen to get some of those membership gift vouchers moving for Christmas. So if you thought about that but haven't done it, perhaps you may get online and buy a few for friends and relatives or others. And of course, the material we're putting out is designed to be shared. So please do that, but hopefully give us some uh, recognition as you do that. Now, I'd also like to say that on uh, Tuesday, tomorrow at one o'clock, I've got No Smoke Without Fire where I'm talking with Debbie Evans. The subject is the PREVENT strategy. And of course, PREVENT was one of the key policies within my overview of UK column politics, where we're talking about how the government is introducing the means of controlling us ever more tightly. And PREVENT is clearly part of that. So join us for that live broadcast at one o'clock. Uh, sorry, it's a recording, but it will go out at one o'clock tomorrow. Uh, now, where do we go from there? Well, I think we're going on to the subject of vaccines. And uh, Mark, I think it's good that we're finally starting to see some uh, people standing up to challenge the vaccine, the global vaccine industry. Uh, indeed. Um, the uh, Attorney General of the state of Texas, Ken Paxton, survived an impeachment attempt, and he's uh, moving full steam only. Uh, this just in pretty recently, uh, dated November 30th. Here's a press release. Part of what it says, Attorney General Ken Paxton sues Pfizer for misrepresenting COVID-19 vaccine efficacy and conspiring to censor public discourse. Of course, they're not really traditional vaccines, but we'll leave that aside. The first bit of this press release, Texas Attorney General Paxton, uh, I was still reading that. Um, let's go back to the first. Uh, has sued Pfizer Incorporated for unlawfully misrepresenting the effectiveness of the company's COVID-19 jab and attempting to censor public discussion of the product. Pfizer engaged, says Paxton, in false, deceptive, and misleading acts and practices by making unsupported claims regarding the company's COVID-19 vaccine in violation of a law, the Texas Deceptive Trade Practices Act. Now we'll move on. And here's a little bit more meat. Uh, I'll just uh, pick out the highlights. The pharmaceutical company's widespread representation that its vaccine possessed 95% efficacy against infection was highly misleading, says the press release. The metric represented a calculation of the so-called relative risk reduction for vaccinated individuals in Pfizer's initial month clinical trial results. FDA publications indicate relative risk reduction is a misleading statistic that, quote, unduly influences consumer choice. Uh, moving on in the bottom of this slide, in fact, Pfizer's product failed to live up to the company's representations, alleging COVID-19 cases increased after widespread vaccine administration, and some areas, says Paxton, saw a greater percentage of deaths from COVID-19 among the vaccinated population than the unvaccinated. When the failure of its product became apparent, Pfizer to silencing truth tellers, the lawsuit notes, quote, how did Pfizer respond when it became apparent that its vaccine was failing and the viability of its cash cow was threatened? The answer, by intimidating those spreading the truth and by conspiring, oh, dare he say the word conspiring, to censor its critics, Pfizer labeled as criminals 
says Paxton. Those who spread facts about the vaccine, it accused them of spreading, of course, misinformation, and it coerced social media platforms to silent, prominent truth tellers. A very important part of this press release. Moving on from there, and here's a key quote and a picture of Mr. Paxton. The facts are clear. Pfizer did not tell the truth about their COVID-19 vaccines, whereas the Biden administration weaponized the pandemic to force illegal public health decrees on the public and enrich pharmaceutical companies. I will use every tool to protect our citizens who were misled and harmed by Pfizer's actions. Some bold statements. A lot of people are going to hope that Paxton is going to back that up with sustained and genuine action. Now, here's a little bit from a pro-pharma website, generally pro-pharma. Uh, this is a picture, of course, of uh, Paxton putting out a uh, the first pitch at a Houston Astros game. Texas AG Paxton fires off another lawsuit at Pfizer. This isn't the only, evidently. This, this one over the co- company's COVID-19 vaccine, moving on from there. Uh, here's a little bit. I'll keep it relatively brief. Texas General Ken Paxton is going after Pfizer again, less than two weeks after documents were unsealed showing that Texas has accused Pfizer and manufacturer Tris Pharma of providing a compromised ADHD medicine to the state. Now Paxton has sued, sued Pfizer for unlawfully misrepresenting the effectiveness of the company's COVID-19 vaccine, Comirnaty. In May, This is back in May, Paxton announced that the state launched an investigation into whether Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson, the big three, conducted a gain-of-function research, conducted gain-of-function research, and the possibility that these companies manipulated trial data. So um, Paxton has a broader scope going on here than initially meets the eye. Paxton's office did not immediately respond to questions about Moderna. Is he going to sue them and Johnson & Johnson? Evidently, we don't know that yet. The COVID-19 vaccine lawsuit comes right after Paxton accused Pfizer and Trist Pharma of knowingly providing a compromised ADHD drug, Quilivalent XR, to the state's Medicaid program. In response, Pfizer replied, it believes the state's case has no merit and we'll move to dismiss the case in due course. And um, moving on from there, we'll summarize here. Lest we forget, back in 2009, Pfizer pays $2.3 billion to settle a marketing case. And this uh, first couple sentences says it all in terms of the trustworthiness and reputation of Pfizer. The pharmaceutical giant, this from the New York Times, Pfizer agreed $3.3 billion to settle civil and criminal allegations, civil and criminal, that it had illegally marketed its painkiller Bextra, and that drug was withdrawn. And get this, let's not forget, it was the largest healthcare fraud settlement and the largest criminal find of any kind ever. Any kind ever. So, of course, it begs the question why the government went in both feet with Pfizer to begin with, with that in its record. Back to you, Brian. Mark, thank you very much for that. Well, it's encouraging that we have got people standing up to try and challenge these giants in court. Of course, they have more or less unlimited money to fight court cases. But if the evidence is good enough, we can expect the right result. And they did get that huge uh, fine previously. So we need more people digging on the data. And UK Column is going to be assisting with that. Uh, We'll talk more about that in the news on Wednesday. Um, Charles, let's bring you back. 
because another bastion of the state here in UK, at least the Church of England, is under a bit of pressure. Ryan, it is. And uh, the turmoil of safeguarding has reared its head again. This was a, an issue that cropped up in the summer of this year, 2023, and the Church Times reports here that the now defunct uh, Independent Safeguarding Board has decided, well, or rather members of it have decided that they're not going to cooperate with a review. So really, it just the, the specifics of the situation are not as important as the overall theme. But in effect, the, an independent safeguarding board, which was stood up last year and has collapsed in pretty short order, just illustrates the point that the safeguarding practices within the church are evidently failing, but also in being put there in the first place, there's a sort of implicit suggestion that by writing this stuff down, it looks like the church is doing something. And in actual fact, safeguarding really is just the the application of common sense and, and moral fortitude to any given situation, but specifically with regard to vulnerable people. It shouldn't need writing down, but also it shouldn't be forgotten that in writing it down, that doesn't mean that the job has been done. So we'll just have a quick look at some of the text from the ISB itself, which doesn't, as I say, actually exist anymore. So if we just put that on screen now, um, it's, a, it's a great pains to say how it's an arm's length body and it's you know it doesn't have influence brought to bear on it so that if we click on one then we can talk about the risks that it it envisages so it says the church has put the isb in place to do work it cannot then frustrate if the isb as a driver of change lies too close to the church there is a risk it could be absorbed if it's too far away it could gain insufficient traction well for goodness sake, the ISB sat in Church House on Great Smith Street, which is the corporate headquarters of the Church of England. So how is it that it could be regarded as being at arm's length? Anyway, nevertheless, the crux of it seems to be that two individuals have fallen out with the Council of Archbishops, which is written up by the Church of England. So if we just put the next slide on screen, we can just see that they they, they make a sort of rather oblique reference to the why, the critical bit here is that it refers to the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse, ICSA, into the Anglican Church in England and Wales in 2020. So although they're not giving the specific nature of the fallout this year, it seems very hard to imagine that, that, that the hangover from that investigation doesn't have something to do with this. And we'll then just look at the, the confusion of all these different bodies that somehow have got their finger in the same pie. And how on earth is that supposed to clarify the situation or indeed give, give good outcomes for the people that are supposed to be protected by all these safeguarding policies in the first place? So we've got we've had the international sorry, the independent safeguarding board. We've got the national safeguarding panel and, and Meg Munn is is the lady who's resigned from that so we've got them and then we'll just go on to the next slide please because we then see that now baroness jay has been brought in and of course she's known because she chaired the ixa inquiry so again in terms of sort of independence and arm's length and all the rest of it it seems hard to understand exactly why she would be an appropriate person to be brought in not least because she's going to be supported by the former secretary to ixa 
John O'Brien. So already a, a very muddled picture. And again, if we if we click on one to the next slide, just to get an overview of what the Church of England even means by safeguarding, they talk about promoting a safer environment to safely recruit people, to respond promptly to everyday concerns, care pastorally for victims, care pastorally for those who are subject of concerns of allegations of abuse. What they what they avoid saying is that history suggests that, that the greatest risk posed is from those within the church and not outside of it. But of course, this is this is a, an area that they dare not venture into. They're, they're in effect marking their own homework on this, and um, they're setting a, a dangerous precedent indeed. So we'll just look again at the the, the latest iteration of the audit that's being conducted. So if we just put the next slide up on screen now, we can see that there's uh, an independent safeguarding audit going on. So yet another organisation is, is involved with this, and they've been asked to carry out audits of the Church of England to make sure dioceses, cathedrals and palaces are doing all they can to create environments where everyone feels safe, valued and respected. All very well if it does actually do something, but it may not. So with this in mind, the utter sort of chaos and, in effect, refusal to address the issues that they have had with particularly child sexual abuse, it's small wonder that this coincides exactly with the secular society announcing the forthcoming bill in the House of Lords, which is to separate church from the state, and that's going to be introduced by Lord Scriven, Paul Scriven. So if we just go to the next slide... We'll see what he's put on Twitter. So this is a, a bill. He's saying, I'm looking forward to introducing this bill that will finally deal with the Church of England being one of many religious organisations and not the state church with the privileges that brings. I think it's easy to understand where that sort of sentiment could come from, given the backdrop of the absolute fiasco surrounding safeguarding. And that's obviously just one of the small things that the church has dealt with ineffectively in the last few years. Um, just as a parting thought, we'll have a look at a bill going through Parliament at the moment, which may at first glance seem like it has nothing to do with the church. In actual fact, it will have everything to do with the church, and that is the Fetal Sentience Committee Bill. And if we click on one, we'll just see it's a bill that Lord Moylan has sponsored, and it says to make provision for a Fetal Sentience Committee to review current understanding of the sentience of the human fetus and to inform policymaking and for connected purposes. Now, the reason that pertains to the Church of England is that a considerable portion of their 10.1 billion investment portfolio is specifically given over to companies that are actively involved in genomics into stem cell research and indeed, therefore, the sentience of the human fetus is very, very directly relevant to that. So we'll be keeping an eye on where that bill gets to. Charles, thank you very much for that. A lot to be discussed. We can do some, some more in UK Column Extra after the news today. Uh, but yes, uh, there, there needs to be a lot of questions asked of the Church of England and where it's going and why it is becoming as it is. Let's move on very briefly to our old friend, the BBC. Now, last Friday, I picked up very quickly on something which I thought was strange. It was quite early in the morning. This was the BBC's webpage. Um, of course, we had a resumption of fighting in Gaza. 
I was intrigued by the uh, BBC Live report here, which said, watch emotional moment mum told of hostage release. And then it went down here. What is the damage in Gaza? So to me, this was the BBC skating over the uh, horrific violence and uh, killing and mutilating of families and children in very large numbers. Um, the language was doing something different. But if we went to that live lick where I expected to see more of the explosion, this was their banner. If we pop that on screen. And um, as your eye scanned across this, the first video was this one. And it says, watch, explosions heard and smoke rises in Gaza as combat resumed. So this is the video which the BBC had uh, shown the early morning audience. And it was promoted on their website up to a particular point in time. But let's look at this video, video clip. So it was only 17 seconds and everything was uh, in the distance, um, but uh, something was to change at about uh, quarter past nine. So if we put this on, on screen, if we put this one up on screen, this was the clip where everything was in the distant, distance fighting. Uh, that was at 8.45 or up until 8.45. And then at 9.25, suddenly there was a new video. Let's now look at the new video and watch carefully. So uh, the point I'm making is that for the BBC in prime time viewing immediately after the ceasefire had ended and the fighting had resumed, the clip they put out was all in the distance. It wasn't really showing anything, but uh, after nine o'clock that was changed. And the same clip indeed included pictures of massive explosions. So my question to the BBC is, did they use this initial clip to downplay the fact the fighting had resumed. My opinion, my personal opinion is we shouldn't trust the BBC on this, but I'll leave the read, uh, our audience today to decide what was actually going on. But we're on the subject of the BBC. So, Charles, I'm going to bring you back in here because you've got some really astonishing reporting to do with uh, uh, the armed forces in UK and uh, solar panels. I have. And bearing in mind COP28 is in full swing, I've got a headline from the BBC website, which almost requires a second read because it at first glance looks as though it might be some crafty asymmetric warfare strategy to do down the Chinese. Solar panels used by British Army linked to claims of forced labour in China now, a photograph accompanies this. If we click on one, just to verify that in actual fact, the army definitely does have solar panels. There are two soldiers walking with them, so it must be real. And this refers to Project Prometheus. Now, um, 
that we'll go on and have a look at the detail of that. I couldn't help but think Prometheus was an interesting subject or an interesting title for the project. Prometheus, of course, being a titan, the god of fire, who is best remembered for having tricked men and gods by cooking up a great big ox, cutting it in half, and uh, trying to disguise the bones as the best bit by covering them in fat, which, of course, is a trick that Zeus fell for, uh, allegorical, perhaps, with the net zero agenda and policy. But that's, by the by, uh, the the project itself, which um, is described on the MOD website, is under the banner of how we are transforming for a sustainable future. So if we click on one, we can just see that they've got this site that we saw at Leckenfield. It's the first of four pilot sites, and they list where the other ones will be. They, they then boast that when they've completed the four schemes, it will result in £1 million in efficiency saving and reduce emissions by 2,000 tonnes of carbon dioxide. So we'll keep those statistics in mind. The first, as a sort of frame of reference, um, years ago, well, some years ago, over a decade ago, when Chelsea Barracks was sold the figure sticks in my mind at being somewhere over 900 million pounds was the, the value of the sale it, within a year of selling that land the ministry of defense had spent more than that money housing the people that had been uh, taken out of accommodation in chelsea barracks so that just gives an idea of how defense spending can work if not kept on top of but again, with the, the sort of the climate agenda and the environmental piece in mind, I thought I'd have a look at the, the perceived cost of their core business, which involves blowing an awful lot of things up. So we look at the International Politics and Security Journal, if we can just put that on the screen now, and we've got a, an appropriately sort of blackened image, but it's suggesting that war is a climate killer. And indeed, if we go on to the next slide, we'll see that that's reinforced by the Conflict and Environment Observatory, the military's contribution to climate change. And if we click on one, they articulate that with a photograph. Again, enormous great explosion. So you get the idea. A lack of transparency makes it hard to calculate the true scale of military emissions. And they explain that in the next slide because they produce a report. Sorry, wrong, not the mm -hmm. next one. But we'll have a quick look at this because we've got the... Um, and I think, sorry, is there not a slide in between? Um, no, but there isn't. A, it goes uh, not. No, okay, no, no, that's that's fine. Um, in which case, if we can go on to the Harvard review, and we we also have to consider the, the nature of the munitions that they're using. And in this case, we've got a focus on depleted uranium, which of course was in the news as having been sent to Ukraine and being declared safe. And if we click on one here, we see that the text suggests that depleted uranium may pose a risk to both soldiers and local civilian populations. So we've got the, the human and environmental cost. When ammunition made from depleted uranium strikes a target, the uranium turns into dust that is inhaled by soldiers near the explosion site. The wind then carries the dust to surrounding areas, polluting local water and agriculture. So we've got the, the sort of dual harms of, of man and environment. Of course, there's not an awful lot more research on this because um, if you don't look, you don't find. And that seems to be the principle that governs the way in which this is, this is put out. Uh, the next slide shows another organisation that's looked into this in quite a bit of detail, the Scientists for Global Responsibility. And specifically, going back to what was said earlier about the emissions side of it, uh, they say that, um, that figures for 
direct GHG emissions are no longer included. We estimate that the main that the figures that are reported in the main text of the report cover less than one third of the MOD's total direct emissions. So if we click on to the next slide, we'll just have a little bit more detail from their report. And the next bit up on the screen gives text cleverly referring to the carbon boot print of the UK military. But they talk about the various ways in which emissions can be projected up into the atmosphere, which of course can be fires from burning buildings, fuel depots and vegetation, healthcare for civilian and military survivors, and post-conflict reconstruction. So there, there are a lot of things that relate to this, and they go on to cite further detail, which if we just put that on screen now, I, I talked about things that uh, will blow up, and they specifically refer to an example from Syria and Iraq. So they say, in 2017, the UK military launched over 1,000 bombs and missiles in Iraq and Syria. The typical size of such a weapon was 500 pounds in weight. The, in certain cases, the mass of the GHG emissions arising from the use of such a bomb could be many thousands of times the mass of the weapon. For example, a bomb this size could cause the concrete columns of a building to fall to to fail within a 20 meter radius of the explosion. So when we consider that they were boasting about the Leckenfield site saving 2000 kilograms of carbon dioxide per year, it, it is something of a drop in the ocean. And I think this gets to the sort of smoke and mirrors and hypocrisy, I, I would say almost complete pointlessness of the situation. So again, we, we have to consider the bill attached to this. And so I've got a House of Commons briefing paper which I'd just like to put up now, the, the most recent document on defence expenditure, because I think this explains one or two things about it. The historical defence exp expenditure, so we can see that on the left in real terms, uh, how much it's sort of gone up and down, and then on the right-hand side when set against GDP. And I would like to point out that sort of uptick just at the bottom right-hand side of the graph in the sort of 2019-20 bit, in effect, going up now. And we'll go on to have a look at the next slide, because the reason that this is important is that this graph here shows the cost of, in effect, a busy armed force or armed forces. And the, the peak there shows the, the uplift of operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. And you can see how abruptly that's fallen away. And in effect, there is there is massive underemployment. Now. So we think about the uptick in spending. How is that the case when operations have dropped off to quite such a degree? Because they are expensive. So if we just click on one, we'll see not necessarily exactly how that's the case, but, but more pertinently, why. So it's saying that the annual defence budget will be 5.8 billion pounds higher in cash terms by the end of the current spending review period. Um, and the critical bit here is that most of this additional funding has been allocated to capital budgets, i.e. money that is spent on major projects and investment, whereas the Ministry of Defence's day-to-day budget is set to decline in real terms over this period. And then, here we go, as a member of NATO, the UK is committed to spending 2% of GDP on defence each year. And then it boasts it was one of just nine 
NATO member countries to have met this target in 2022, spending 2.1% of GDP on defence. Now, I'm not exactly sure how much those solar panels at Leckenfield and, and elsewhere will have cost, but it, it is interesting to note that in order to get into NATO's good books, by deploying a load of solar panels, uh, it is possible to inflate defence spending on not just that, obviously, but plenty of other capital projects and to make it look like the defence budget is being spent in a way that perhaps it isn't. Uh, Charles, thank you for that. Uh, hypocrisy was the word you used, and that came to my mind that, of course, we can start wars worldwide using explosives, setting oil refineries on fire, destroying buildings, billions of pounds of destruction with the expenditure and, uh, we'll say, damage to the environment on reconstruction. Uh, but nobody in UK or NATO, the US, EU, is calling for the wars to stop in order to save the planet. We want the violence to continue while we preach saving the, the, the planet. Um, the hypocrisy is truly mind-blowing. Well, let's just end today's news with a little segment on Henry Kissinger. Of course, many people would say he's responsible for a lot of the trouble or was responsible for a lot of the trouble around the world. Uh, what's your view, Mark? Well, the straight news, Brian, uh, he's one of the global heavyweights. He was. David Rockefeller and Zbigniew Brzezinski passed away in 2017. And in 2021, we lost other foreign policy heavyweights, George Shultz, Colin Powell, Donald Rumsfeld, Neil Sheehan, Senators Bob Dole and Carl Levin. So Mr. Kissinger isn't alone, but he's perhaps the biggest footprint of the globalists among those that I've listed, Rockefeller and Brzezinski would come in a close second and third. And uh, the New York Times, the slide we saw just a moment ago, and most other press is describing Kissinger as, quote, a complicated figure, the devil incarnate to some, a very uh, principled and able statesman to others, uh, certainly a significant person to all. A uh, slide, though, is this one. We'd want to get this one in, if any, today. Uh, the New York Times reporter on Kissinger's passing is none other than David Sanger, the White House and National National Security Depot, uh, correspondent, excuse me, for the New York Times reports on Biden is, and his administration. Interestingly enough, there uh, and Henry Kissinger were both at Bilderberg 2019 in Montreux, Switzerland. You can see the names there at the bottom of the first segment. You see Kissinger listed. And that at the bottom of the second segment on the same slide, you see David E. Sanger listed. So the New York Times had a reporter on the outside reporting as if it's being objective. So had David Sanger on the inside with Kissinger breaking bread at that meeting. The Washington Post did the same thing. They had somebody on the inside, um, a Miss McArdle, a columnist, and yet they reported from the outside on Bilderberg that year as if they were being an objective reporter. Both newspapers very complicit along with Kissinger in the meeting. Uh, this is just a quick slide, not much detail to go into here from Rolling Stone, of course, a very liberal left, uh, largely music and culture magazine, uh, saying that Kissinger was really the quintessential war criminal. And among many things, the left-wing critics are saying, and they're not without merit in some of this, that Kissinger was responsible largely for the bombing of Cambodia and Laos, escalating the war under the Nixon administration when he was Secretary of State. He's credited with, credited with ending the war. Of course, that was in favor of the communists that all these U.S. soldiers died to uh, fend off. But uh, the, the bombing with clusters in Cambodia and Laos 
uh, still uh, wreaks havoc to this day, we're told, as children and other people in those countries occasionally find old bombs that occasionally go off. So Kissinger very much has a very mixed bag in terms of his background. And to hear a little bit more, if we have time today, here's William F. Jasper, an acquaintance of mine from The New American, who tells a little-known chapter, uh, I'll call them allegations, but they're very compelling, about Kissinger's life. So we'll go from here. Where does the where did Kissinger come from? He's a, he was born in Germany. That that counts for his thick German accent, his trademark accent. Uh, next, probably next to Arnold Schwarzenegger, probably at, at the time it was the most famous German accent in the world. But how does a guy, uh, you know, a German American immigrant, in effect, rise to such heights? What what kind of trajectory did he follow? What was his background? Did he come of some sort of elite parentage? No, but he, here's the here's the thing that is. Uh, uh, especially interesting now, decades ago when we first wrote about uh, about this, about Kissinger's early uh, communist connections, uh, that was written off as, oh, that's crazy. That's uh, completely uh, bizarre conspiracy theory stuff. So let's just look uh, briefly at that. Kissinger, while he was uh, in Germany uh, during uh, World War II, was in army intelligence, our army intelligence. But according to several top defectors uh, from uh, the Soviet Union, including Michael Golanuski, uh, uh, who was one of the top uh, Soviet defectors ever to come to the United States and to expose many of the uh, uh, double agents that were, and moles that were in our government, uh, said that uh, Henry Kissinger, uh, was actually a member of a KGB cell in Germany uh, and that he uh, went by the code name Bohr, B-O-R. And uh, uh, Frank uh, Capel wrote about that for us in uh, American Opinion magazine decades ago. And uh, other documents have come out uh, since then or, or testimony that seem to uh, to bear that out. He was brought into the United States and then up through the higher circles by the Rockefeller family. Uh, indeed, that's an interesting uh, capstone to put on this report today. But uh, love him or hate him, he was a major figure. But as Jasper explained, there's some things in his background that perhaps need a little bit more exp- exploration and explaining, but that provides a much more broader, a much broader overview of here today on UK Column than you're generally going to get from the mainstream news. So uh, that'll do it for today with him. Okay, Mark, thank you very much for that. And we must end today's news there. We're going to say a huge thank you to our audience, wherever you are in the world, and a really big thank you to the people who support us. Financially, we can only do what we do with your help and uh, the generosity is wonderful. Thank you for that. Uh, we will have a um, an extra in a few minutes. So if you're a subscriber UK Column, stay with us. And we've got a lot to discuss about some of the points that we've raised in today's news. So stay with us and we will see you then. Bye-bye. <laughs>